0: Morning already. Exodus chapter six. We're going to get to in just a minute, and I'm going to do try to do a much better job this week than I did last week at paying attention to the time. Okay, so I'm going to try not to preach beyond uh, my allotted time this morning. Let me add just a few words um, to uh, what uh, has already been mentioned here this morning. First of all, uh, as far as announcements go, first of all, next week is going to be an exciting week. Uh, next week, Matt Moore is going to be preaching the Word of God uh, here in our Sunday morning worship service. And Will Perkins is going to be preaching the Word of God at Lincoln Street Baptist Church um, across town. And so, uh, um, Liberty Baptist Church is going to be, or uh, Dow going to be filling the ministry of uh, some of the pastors here at Liberty. Um, so, Matt's going to be preaching here. Will's going to be preaching over at Lincoln Street. And, and I think later in June, I don't think, I know, later in June, Matt's going to be preaching there at Lincoln Street. So, many of you know they're still without uh, a senior pastor um, uh, after Pastor Rusty's passing, and so um, both Matt and Will have been invited to speak over there uh, a, a few times now, and so we're excited that God, I'm excited that God has men here within our congregation that other churches look to to come and fill the pulpit, um, and that, that's, a, that's an exciting thing, so I'm thankful, uh, thankful for that, and then, um, uh, and then I want to add one more word about our men's Bible study, um, so the month of June, 6 a.m., Uh, Right here in the fellowship hall, it's just going to be for the those first uh, those yeah the first four Wednesdays in the month of June. It's just going to be a four-week series to men specifically on the responsibility that men bear for parenting. Now, if you aren't a parent. Um, If you're a young single man and there's still going to be an enormous amount of profit uh, for you. If you're beyond your parenting years and you've got grandchildren, you think, ah, it doesn't really apply to me. I promise you there will be great content for you there as well. But I will say this, if you are a man in our church and you have children in your home, you will be getting a personal call from me asking you to please come, if at all possible, to this. And if you say, well, those hours don't work, my next question to you will be, when does work, because I will get a group of men together or I'll come one-on-one. There's some content that we need to talk about together as men. And I just, I'm going to let you know ahead of time, it's going to be a little bit of, we're going to take the gloves off and just get down to the nitty-gritty of the responsibility that resides on the shoulders of dads to look for the spiritual care and well-being of their children. The Bible puts the onus on men. Fathers, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so while we're gonna take the gloves off, it's gonna be kind of a convicting opportunity, uh, an opportunity for us to be convicted by the word of God. I also want it to be a time that's full of gospel hope for us as dads. There is one perfect dad. There's one perfect father. And the rest of us are in desperate need of his grace, his mercy, and his Holy Spirit's power. And so that's what we're going to be appealing to um, Will and I kind of joked during his announcements. Um, I'm going to be leading it, but we're going to be uh, using resources from other godly men who have fathered their children. So it's not like you're going to become coming to learn from me personally about how to pass or how to how to father and parent. Um, we're going to learn together from others uh, who have who have gone before us. Okay, so let me encourage you, dads, uh, to be there for that. Exodus chapter six. Now, look in verse 14. We've got a number of visitors here this morning. And as I read through this passage, you are going to be thrilled that you came to Liberty Baptist Church this morning to hear this passage of Scripture expounded to you. Verse 14, these are the heads of their fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul. The son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uzziel, the years of the life of Kohath, being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister, right, so I guess he's marrying his aunt, and she bore him, Aaron, and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Meshiel, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I'm the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? I can already hear what you're thinking. Are you serious? Jeremy, you're going you're gonna to preach from that? I read this uh, as I often do. I don't always do, but I try to. I I try on Saturday nights when we're having dinner together as a family to read through the passage of Scripture that I'm going to preach the next day and then then preach a mini-sermon to my children because I think if I can't communicate it right here, right now, I'm probably not ready for tomorrow. So I read through the passage, and Evangeline looks at me, and she says, It's like the credits at the end of a movie. I mean, none of, you, none of you would say out loud that there are boring parts of the Bible. But you would think it. So let's be honest with each other for a moment. There are some parts of the Bible that are more captivating than other parts of the Bible. This list of names that we just read here together this morning is called a, some of you might know this, some of you may, this might be a new word for you, it's called a genealogy. A genealogy is a long list of names of family, like a family tree. The part that I just read, at first glance, seems like one of those less captivating portions of Scripture. And to be perfectly honest with you, and I promise you I'm not being heretical when I say this out loud, it is. It, it, you can read the passage yourself and know, okay, like that's definitely one of those passages if I'm reading my Bible through and I get to it, like I'm not like stopping on every name and thinking through. Now, hmm, at the end of a verse, or in the middle of verse 19, there's someone named Mushy. Mushy. Now there's, you know, younger couples in here. Now there's a potential name for one of our children someday, mushy. Nah, no, it's probably not what, this is, this is one of those less captivating parts. This is potentially to us a boring passage of Scripture. There, I said it out loud. But notice that I'm not saying that it's a less important part of Scripture. I'm just saying that it's less captivating to us. Brothers and sisters, I actually want us to to learn from this passage of Scripture what it is that God actually wants us to learn from this passage of Scripture. Because I want you to remember something. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says that all scripture, many of you know these verses, right? All scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So all Scripture, every single verse of the Bible, is profitable in some way. That just means it's kind of left up to us now to look into this passage and go, okay, uh, where's the profit in this passage? And before we look at the specifics of this passage, I first wanted to remind you that all Scripture is profitable. But secondly, I want us to know something about genealogies. There are different portions of the Scripture where there's lots of lists of names, right? Recently, in my Bible reading, I read through those first 10, 11 chapters of 1 Chronicles. And it's just names and names and names. And I'm just going to be honest with you, as I read through those 10 chapters, it took me about 60 seconds. Because I just kind of went, yep, all right, okay. All right. I was kind of looking to see if there was anything that popped out, you know, something special about one of the people. Otherwise, I was thinking, I'm not going to remember these names. They're cool names. But you know, that, that's how I read through the first 10 chapters of 1 Corinthians. But genealogies in general, and I want you to know this, right? Because you know there's a bunch of genealogies in Genesis, and there's a bunch in 1st and 2nd uh, Chronicles, and, and obviously here in Exodus. And then who remembers how the first book of the New Testament starts? You remember? Anybody have the, the genealogy there in Matthew chapter 1 memorized? Some of you might know a song to that. The, the New Testament actually starts with genealogies. What's the deal with, why are they even in here? We don't care. Some of you might be like, wow, Jeremy, I didn't know how to pronounce those names. I don't know how to pronounce them. I just said them in the way that made sense to me, right? So, so why should we even care that there, these genealogies are even in the Bible, First, genealogies actually help substantiate the Bible's historical truth. Like, like they're there to show us that these real people really lived and they had children and they had children. This isn't just a made-up story. It's verifiable historically that these people were chosen by God and they had children, had children, had children, so on and so forth. Just like you can go in you, backward in your family tree and verify the reality of the McMorris family or the whatever family that you're a part of. In fact, let me ask this. How many of you know the names of your great-grandfathers? Can anyone name? I can name one of my, you have at least four. Can anyone name all four? I'm just curious. You don't have to name them for me, but you're like, yeah, no, I, I know all four. Really, Jordan? Wow, I'm impressed. So, so like, I didn't expect anyone to remember all four of their great-grand. Now, if you went great-great, you got great-great, Jordan? You think you could go that far back? Really? Man. Yeah. You got to give me time to remember my kids' names. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure how you do that. Genealogies, for some of us, obviously to Jordan, this doesn't hold true. But for most of us, it's kind of like, meh. I, it's not something that's particularly important to us. In Bible times, genealogies were actually very important. It, it, it substantiates the Bible's reality. Genealogies also confirm prophecies that were made, right? So in Isaiah, there, it's promised that, that through the line of David, the Messiah would come. And then in Matthew chapter 1, we see the Messiah comes through the line of David. So we see prophecy is confirmed through these genealogies. These lists also demonstrate the detail-oriented nature of God and his interest in individuals. Most of the names in most of the genealogies throughout the Bible, we have no idea who the person is. We don't know anything about Mushy. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but I like saying it that way. We don't know anything about him, But, but his name's right there. And you know who does know about him? Yeah, absolutely. God knows exactly, and God knows why he was included here. And maybe someday, if we remember this sermon, we won't. Um, you know, in heaven, we we'll go to God and say, what's the deal with Mushy? I want to meet this guy. Where's Mushy? But, but it shows that God is a detail-oriented. He is interested in individuals. And it can also be used to make a point about someone or something, which is why this genealogy is listed in this passage of Scripture here in what is quickly becoming my favorite book of the Bible, The book of exodus and so before we look at the three things we're going to learn through this genealogy this morning i'm actually going to do what is almost unconscionable i'm going to read it again but i'm going to put a chart up on the up on the screen for you jay can you put this chart up it's going to be a little bit hard to read i read every single one of those names already this morning but I want you to try to do something, okay? I want you to watch the screen while I read the passage, okay? So many of you know that Abraham and then his son Isaac and then his son Jacob are kind of the three first patriarchs in the nation of Israel. And Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and that's where we get the name for the nation of Israel. And this genealogy picks up with Israel already assuming before him Abraham and Isaac. So Abraham, then Isaac, Then Jacob slash Israel. And then how many of you remember how many sons Israel had? They had 12. There were 12 tribes of Israel. But there's only three listed here this morning because the author's purpose here is not to list everyone for everything. He's doing something specific. I'm going to explain that in a minute. Let your eyes follow along. I'm going to read relatively quickly. These are the heads of the father's house, the sons of Reuben, first son under Israel, the firstborn of Israel, Henoch, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. Got it? The sons of Simeon. Je- uh, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul. The son of a Canaanite woman, right? So, so uh, Simeon married uh, a, a foreign woman and had the son Shaul. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari the years of the life of Levi being 137 years, the sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uzziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. You still with me? Anybody following along? Uh, where was I? Uh, I think verse 20. Amram took as his wife, Jeho- uh, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. Those are, that's a big deal right there. What, what's happening there? with Moses and Aaron being born, to whom they're born to, through, trace back up, you see Moses and Aaron, here's something that's really important, because I don't think I'm going to have this on the screen later when I talk about this, but if you trace up, Amram, trace up, Kohath, trace up, Levi, it's really important to note, you guys are so kind to, to walk through this with me, I actually nerded out, I, I before I found this, this week, I drew, i Read this and drew this out on a. It's on my desk, a big piece of paper. So I nerded out over this. So thanks for letting me take a minute with it. It's important that Moses and Aaron are coming through the line of Levi. It's one of the reasons why this genealogy is here in the middle of a super cool story, right? I mean, we got snakes turning rods turning into snakes and and water turning into blood, and then all of a sudden we're reading a bunch of names. Who cares? Where was I? Verse. Uh, I'm going to jump in 21. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife, Elisheba, the daughter of Amenadab and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Remember the names Nadab and Abihu? They were, these, they were the ones who offered bad uh, fire and the Lord consumed them with fire. The sons of Korah, you remember the name Korah? He led a rebellion in the wilderness. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Ebiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. Phineas is someone else you may not remember, but Phineas is the one who burned with zeal for the Lord's house and went and the, uh, with the, those that were committing adultery and immorality. He drove a spear through both the man and the woman, and God said, well done that's an, that, you're like man i want to hear that story it, it's, that's rated that one's rated r you're gonna have to wait we'll get rid of more of the kids before we cover that one um cora phineas these are the heads of the father's houses of the levites by their clan the these are the aaron and moses to whom the lord said bring out the people of israel from the land of egypt by their hosts so i'm going to stop there okay i promise it's going to only get more interesting from there There are three things that I think God and Moses, who's writing the book of Exodus, wants us to know from this big, long, boring list of names. I think God knew that uh, 4,000 years later, we were all going to be going, I don't know these names, they're hard to pronounce, and I don't really care. And he wants us to care about them. First of all, the first thing that we see as we walk through this, and by the way, my main point is going to come at the end, first of all this, Aaron and Moses are the men God intends to use. That, that's one of the things that God wants to make clear. That's one of the reasons this genealogy is listed here. Do you remember at the end of verse uh, uh, 12 and 13 of this passage, Moses says to the Lord, the people of Israel haven't listened to me. Why should I expect Pharaoh to listen to me? I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. I'm an unclean man. I'm not the right guy for the job. You've got the wrong man for the job. And what God reminds Moses and Aaron of is this. No, no, no. I've got exactly the right man for the job. In fact, for hundreds of years, hundreds of years ago, when I chose Abraham, I knew what I was doing. I knew Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi, I can't remember all the names. Trace, trace, trace down. You're exactly who I want. You're exactly where I want. And God is, is reminding Moses. Moses has just told God that he's a man who doesn't deserve to be here. And so God is replying and he's showing both Aaron and Moses his lineage all the way back to Levi and Israel. And by doing this, he's reminding these men that they are men who are in God's family. And since they're in God's family, the covenant promises that God made to Abraham are true for them and God's people. They're not unclean. They're not of uncircumcised lips. They're not incapable because the God of the Abrahamic promise is with them. In this lineage, it's, uh, not only is it obvious that they were God's people, but they're part of the tribe of Levi. Levi was a some of you know this, Levi's tribe was a priestly tribe. That's right. They were the priests of God. And it's going to become important here later in the book of Moses be, or in the book of Exodus because Moses is going to do a lot of things that only priests are allowed to do. And Moses is going to behave as a priest and so it's important for us to realize he he's part of that family that God is going to name as the priestly tribe. Moses is going to make a big deal out of this throughout the rest of the book of Exodus. This reminds us that God hadn't picked randomly and God didn't pick the wrong guys and he had the right man for the job. Brothers and sisters, while God is doing that in this book to remind Moses and Aaron who they are and to remind the children of Israel as they would read through the book of Exodus who Moses and Aaron are and as we would read through the book of Exodus to know who Moses and Aaron are, God wants that principle to be encouraging to you so that you remember that God knows who you are. God has formed you, right? Remember, um, uh, He's formed you in your mother's womb, in, your, in her inward parts. Like You are who God created you to be in the family God created you to be in, and the moment in history God created you for. You are here on purpose and with a purpose, and it's not by accident. Sometimes we're tempted to think the same sorts of things that Moses and Aaron thought. I'm not the right guy for the job. I'm not good enough at at this. I'm not a good enough Christian. Lord, use somebody else. I'm an unclean kind of person. I'm an unclean kind of vessel. Sometimes we face things that seem bigger than us and beyond us, right? Deliver the children of Israel from Egypt. You got the wrong guy, Lord. God has chosen you and given you a task, which he has. And with the Spirit's help, you you can do what God has called you to do. Moses doubted whether or not he could do, with the Spirit's help, what God had called him to do. And many of us doubt whether we can do what God has called us to do. Last night, Angie and I were talking about some of these things, and she reminded me of an old quotation from Dr. Bob Jones, Sr. He said this, You can do anything you ought to do. Obviously, he meant with the Spirit of God's help, that's a great little quotation. You can do anything you ought to do. If you ought to do it, then with this, the help of the Spirit of God, you can do it. That's a good little parenting principle right there, isn't it? Your kid comes to you and says, I can't. No, hold on. Is it, is it the thing that you ought to do? Is it the right thing to do? If, it's, if, it, if you ought to do it, then you can do it. You can do anything you ought to do. I see some of you writing that down. Dr. Bob Jones Sr. said that, and you put that above the, the dinner table for your kids to be reminded. Friends, we need to be reminded, not just our kids. We can do anything we ought to do with the Spirit's help. God has us where he has us and who uh, and created us to be for the moment in time in history and the opportunities that he's created us for. God has you at this moment in time on purpose. Don't neglect obeying him for any reason, for fear, for perceived inadequacy or laziness, whatever. Don't, don't disobey. One of the things that we learned from this passage is that Aaron and Moses are the men God intends to use to deliver his people. Secondly, the second thing we learned from the genealogy specifically And I love, this is one of my favorite things. God started teaching me this through the scriptures a number of years ago. It's been one of the most encouraging things to me um, over the years. God uses normal people. And by, by normal people, what I mean is weak, sinful, stained, broken, Skeleton in the closet, battling with sin today. uncertain, unsure, physically unhealthy, financially unhealthy people. Don't look around at anyone else in the room. You just need a mirror. Like us. We, no, normal people, just regular, old average to below average people like us. And you might say, yeah, but it's Moses. But I mean, we're going to get to this a little bit more in a second. Moses has already committed murder and run away from God for 40 years. You want to talk about someone backsliding and us wondering whether or not they're really a follower of God? Well, he backslid, if you will, use those words, for 40 years. And it wasn't because he was some amazing Bible scholar with a PhD in the peninsula of Sinai. And God was using him to have a great uh, evangelistic ministry there in Sinai. And God said, you know who I need to help deliver the people of Israel is this big, powerful dude. He goes to a guy who had ran away 40 years ago and has been running away from God for 40 years. And he pulls an average Christian to be the one who God's going to use to help deliver his people. There, in this list, we see that God uses normal, normal, there's a lot of names in this list. And most of the people, we have no idea who they are. A few of them stand out, and I kind of already highlighted a few of them. In fact, Jay, put that that, um, screen back up. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That's so cool. I I mean, I know I'm an absolute nerd to think about um, how cool that is. Um, and, And just so you know, this is just, uh, you know, a little theological tidbit. When, when genealogies are listed in the Bible, they are almost never a complete genealogy of every single name and every single husband and wife and all of their children. We're given the names that we need to, for the point to be made in that moment, right? So, so what the point, that, part of the point that God is making here, or the big point is that Moses and Aaron are the right men for the job. And that's why you just get the first three of Israel's 12 sons. And that's why we're, we're being lead, led down primarily, Levi, then Kohath, and then down through Amram. Like that's, that's why we're given. And then after Moses and Aaron, we're given a bunch of the names um, of Aaron's children because God's making that point primarily. And so almost any of the genealogies, you go to the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, it's not a complete genealogy of every single name but it gives the historical high markers. So there, you have that. A few of these names do stand out. You see the name of Phineas, and I I mentioned earlier. Let me read to you from Numbers chapter 25. We we know the name Phineas because we we know that he is someone who did good. Numbers chapter 25, and the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel. It was... He, uh, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. So God is saying, Phineas is a good guy. I'm gonna set upon him a perpetual priesthood and a covenant of peace because he killed the adulterers that, were, that would have brought my condemnation on the whole nation of Israel. So Phineas stands out because of the good things that we know about him. But more people stand out because of the bad things that we know about them. These are the people of God, God's chosen nation, God's people, the followers of the one true God. And when we look through the list, we know more people who failed miserably than we know people who were like stalwart um, heroes of the faith. You, I mean, let's just start kind of there at the top, right? Israel, he was a lying rascal to begin with, Jacob, right? Then you drop down into Reuben and Levi and Simeon. Levi and Simeon wanted to kill their youngest brother, Joseph. You remember, we're going to kill him. And then they decided Reuben kind of helped protect him and they spared him from uh, death and sold them into slavery, which would have normally led to ultimate death, right? So so we already have Israel, Levi, and Simeon, who we, we know really bad things about right from the start. And then we read about Korah later on, right kind of in the center there. Korah was one who led a rebellion. We're gonna read about later in the book of Exodus, Korah leads a rebellion. Do you remember what happens? This really happens, it's a real story, really truly happened. Korah leads a rebellion, and how does God punish the rebellion of Korah. The earth opens up and swallows them up, okay? So if you're like a descendant of Korah and you're like, oh yeah, we don't like to talk about Uncle Korah. He, yeah, you know that whole thing? Yeah, that was my uncle. Not real proud. Got some bones in the closet there. Nadab and Abihu, They offered strange fire and were consumed by the fire of God because of their disobedience. I mean, let's just talk about Moses and Aaron, the two that we're talking about here. This genealogy is given to us to remind us that they are God's chosen men for this task. And yet we know that Moses has already killed a man. And in fact, he's not going to get to go into the promised land because he disobeys God. So Moses has got mud on his face. And then Aaron, you'll remember later, that when Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai and the people decide that they're gonna involve themselves in all kind of idolatrous, wicked stuff, Aaron's the one who says, "Well, we threw all the gold stuff into the fire, and man, out came this calf, and we just figured we'll worship this as the one true God." Moses and Aaron aren't exactly the bastions of absolute strength and stalwart Christianity. Uh, that, uh, that we would maybe expect the, to be the kind of person that God would choose. But here's the deal, brothers and sisters like, there, is, there isn't that person. Well, there's, there's one. We're going to get to him in just a minute. But apart from Jesus Christ, there isn't the absolutely unwavering, unsinful, unerrant human being who has such spiritual strength and maturity that like he gets the role of being the deliverer no such thing there isn't that person we know one good thing about phineas we know a lot of bad things about a lot of other people and most of them we don't really know anything about but we do know this that they were broken sinful disobedient people many were outright rebellious and many even in this passage were outsiders to the covenant people of god they were people like you and me. That's the kind of people that they were. And God uses normal, broken, sinful people throughout the Bible. We're given a very real, very transparent view of what people are like. And in fact, it's one of the things that um, scholars say makes the Bible credible. We, We believe the Bible because the people who wrote the Bible, when writing about themselves, included all their dirty laundry. If I was writing an autobiography, I wouldn't tell you all the bad stuff about me. I'd tell you the good stuff about me. And, you, okay, and then after I was done writing about a, you know, a fourth of a page, I'd be done with my autobiography. But the fact that almost every one of God's men and women throughout the Scripture have major issues major problems major sins i mean we know about king david one of the first things that we think about king david is his adultery and his murder and he was a man after god's own heart i am so thankful aren't you so thankful that the heroes in the bible are 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 stained cuz i don't know about you but i'm stained i'm damaged goods i'm i'm a, on the outside i might have what's the what's the um Whited sepulcher, I might, I, might, I might look good on the outside, but on the inside, I'm full of dead men's bones. And I'm not speaking hyperbolically. I'm not, like, that's not false humility. That really is really true of me and you. So, so we're just sinful, broken people. And yet this is, these are the ones whom God delights to use, his chosen people. People read about, failures and sinfulness of the heroes and this should make us profoundly confident and reassured God has been doing his work through you know the word that I like to use God has been doing his work through knuckleheads knuckleheads like you knuckleheads like me he isn't scared of losers when we hire someone we want we want the strong we want the smart we want the capable God glorifies himself by using knuckleheads like us friend if you think that God can't use you just take a look in the bible and see that those who walked around most closely with jesus were knuckleheads are any of you watching the chosen series raise your hand if you're watching the chosen series okay a very few of us i am always skeptical of tv shows and movies portraying christianity and portraying jesus and that sort of thing most christian film is super cheesy i'd rather not watch it than watch it and i'm not trying to do a a commercial here i'm just saying that personally watching the chosen has been one of the most profoundly impactful things i've ever watched in my life i have loved it and and one of the and and so if you want to you have smartphones just google the chosen and it'll you can figure out how to watch it um it's offered free on their on their app um Uh, one of the things that I love about The Chosen is that it portrays the disciples in a way that I think would have been far more accurate as those of you who have watched it are nodding your head. um, More accurate to the way I think the disciples would have interacted with each other. They would not have gotten along. They wouldn't have gotten along any better than Baptists in a Baptist church. All right, you're like, oh, that makes sense. I got you, right? Like that's, that's. But so God is bringing together a bunch of weird people who aren't supposed to get together except for the fact that they're following the Messiah. And, and God in this room has brought together a bunch of people who should have no reason to fellowship with each other apart from the fact that we're following the Messiah together. That's, I'm getting way off topic. Okay, dial back in here, Jeremy. So that's the, the second thing we see is this, that God uses normal people. And then thirdly, the third thing that I think we see in this passage is this, we need more than a normal person to save us. In this genealogy, it becomes quickly apparent. If we're going to get the problem solved, we need someone else. Because all the good guys are bad guys in this genealogy, right? Surely Phineas had enough sin in his life to need a Messiah and to need a Savior. So this list, while shows us some of the bright spots, is a little unnerving because there isn't anyone in it who is sufficient to save. Throughout Old Testament history, we see good men and women, strong people who blow it. Good people, well, there's really no such thing, but good people doing really bad things. Prophets who fail to accurately and faithfully represent God to the people. Priests who fail to faithfully represent the people to God. Kings who fail to faithfully rule uh, uh, over God's people. The best and the brightest, the smartest and the strongest prove repeatedly that they are not enough. In our own experiences like this. We want to be more and better than we are. We want more out of ourselves. We want more out of our leaders and out of our rulers. We put our hope in presidents and in governors and in senators and the fact that we live in the state of Texas. And all of those things consistently disappoint. Friends, don't be surprised when humans and human institutions fail to be your savior. They were never intended to be. They cannot be. In fact, while Moses is certainly considered to be a deliverer, the reality is that he wasn't the deliverer. He was one of the ones who needed delivering. He needed the Messiah. He needed the Savior. He needed the strong arm of God to deliver him from Egypt, just like the rest of the Egyptians. His own life is testimony to that. He was delivered from the Nile by a little basket and Pharaoh's daughter, and he is now just as dependent on God to deliver him from Egypt as anyone else in the nation of Israel. And we know, because we have the entirety of the Scripture, we know that God is going to do that here with the nation of Israel, and we know that God is going to do that Ultimately, with his people, when Christ does his work of living and dying and being raised again, God will deliver him and them. Look, look again at verses twenty-six and twenty-eight. These are the Aaron and Moses. These are the Aaron and Moses, right? Look in verse um, twenty-six. It says, uh, "These are the Aaron and Moses." And at the end of verse twenty-seven, it says, "This Moses and this Aaron." Again, that's highlighting the fact that God wants us to know these are the guys. These are the guys. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh king of Egypt about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. God will deliver his people. But even this deliverance, which we're, spoiler alert, they're going to be delivered from the nation of Israel. Even that deliverance leaves them in need of a true and final and eternal deliverance salvation, right? Today, we know that Israel is not living in the promised land, experiencing the peace and shalom that the Bible promises them. You could watch the news once a week and know that there's a bunch of rockets being sent back and forth in and out of Israel. So, they're not experiencing some kind of peaceful exodus. So, so this exodus, this exodus is, is a is a shadow, is a, a precursor, is a taste of other exoduses to come. And it's important for us to know this. And I'm going to say these kinds of things over and over throughout the, the weeks as we study the book of Exodus. But this Exodus, remember, Exodus is a, the book of Exodus is a mirror. The people of Israel represent us as God's people, the children of God. So when we look into the book of Exodus and we see God delivering his people it reminds us of our individual, our individual exodus from sin to salvation. We, when God saves us through Christ's work, we're delivered from the world and we're delivered to, uh, to, um, uh, to be with God. Th- this exodus reminds us of our exodus from this world to heaven when we die. This exodus reminds us of the final exodus when God establishes the new heavens and new earth with God's people. And brothers and sisters, all of this will be accomplished by Jesus Christ. And you don't have a Christian sermon unless you mention Jesus Christ. And you might look at this passage and go, but where, where is Jesus in this passage? Well, look in verse 23. There's a, one, one scholar says this, there's a hint of this saving grace. There's a hint of Jesus Christ in Aaron's genealogy. Verse 23, Aaron married Elisheba, who was the daughter of Amminadab and the sister of Nashon. Those names are significant because Aminadab and Nashon were both ancestors of King David. And thus, they are both included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. Even in the days of Moses and Aaron, God was working out his plan to send a Savior to deliver his people from their sins. Even here in Exodus chapter 6 where you would think Jesus isn't even mentioned, Jesus is mentioned. Brothers and sisters, this is one book telling one story about a coming Messiah who will deliver his people from their sins. Listen, one, pa- one pastor says this, Jesus came from those he came for. That's worth writing down. So this genealogy, Matthew chapter 1, genealogy, Jesus came from human beings. And who did he come to save? Human beings. Jesus came from those he came for. I love that. These genealogies are lists of names through whom God's people are established and through whom the Messiah himself will come in order to save those very people. So here's the main point, and I conclude with this. Here's the main point. God uses imperfect people to bring about the perfect person. God uses imperfect people to bring about the perfect person. God uses these people, the nation of Israel, through whom the Messiah would come, and that Messiah is the one true and perfect person who will deliver us from our sins. So friends, rejoice that the Messiah has come. He lived the perfectly righteous life that you were supposed to live but failed to, and he took the wrath of God against sin that you were supposed to bear, and his salvation is for you if and only if you turn to him as your Lord and Savior. Christian, rejoice to know that God uses sinful, normal people like you and me. So we can go with confidence and live a life full of faithful obedience. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. I'm going ask the music team to come. We're going to close with a song. And then Will will come and close us with a word of prayer.